All right, good evening, everybody. Guess where we're going to be tonight? In the Bible, that's right. That's why we come here on Wednesdays to study God's Word, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 3 again. So turn with me to Genesis 3, and let's ask the Lord to bless our study tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the work that you've given us to do. We thank you for this evening. Um, we thank you for this great weather. We thank you for um, the salvation that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. Lord, we ask for your enablement, not only to hear, but to understand, to understand your word so that we can live it and do it, and so that we could even pass it on to others, Lord. I pray that you would speak to everyone in this room tonight through your word and your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So ever since I was a kid, one of my favorite aspects or parts of God's creation has been uh, flowers. Flowers. I really like plants of all kinds, but I do really like flowers as well. And my mom and I used to sell uh, flowers at a farmer's market when I was a kid. And we had orchids and tiger lilies and all sorts of flowers and plants in our house growing up. And I just uh, grew to be very fond of them. And knowing this, a couple of years ago, my wife brought me to this uh, semi-secret, kind of a valley in Carmel by the sea, and it's uh, wild, it's like a little valley of wild-growing calla lilies, and there's a river, kind of a creek that runs through this valley and waters the whole place, and there's just calla lilies that pop up everywhere, and it's right by the beach, and we were there, and... You really just, it's like right off the road. You can't even see it. There aren't any signs. You just have to know it's there. And we went, and it was so beautiful. The flowers were beautiful. It was green. It was a beautiful day. The beach is right there. I mean, it was just as blue as you could imagine. And I thought of this because I recently heard this song on the radio while I was at work, and the lyrics are going to be very familiar to most of you. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. But the sad reality of life is that it is not a wonderful world that we live in. It is a very beautiful world. The world, the earth has retained much of the beauty from the original creation. Um, there's no question about that, but we also live in a very ugly world, a very ugly world. And so the kind of the universal question of mankind, the the question that has all the philosophers just spinning their wheels and they're thinking and they're thinking, um, but they don't have an answer with certainty that we have from God's word, is this question, why? Why is the world the way it is? Why is the world the way it is? We live in a very ugly world. May, I'm able to make a living because you have diseases and you have injuries. There's all sorts of, all sorts of things that ravage the human body, uh, all sorts of trauma that we suffer. There is the problem of drug abuse um, that is completely destructive to the human body and the mind. We live in a world where you can find sexual perversions of every imaginable kind, not just in our society but across the globe as well. A world with natural disasters, violent crimes like murder and mass murder, we, see, we live in a world with the incompetency and the corruption of civic leaders as well, and the heartache and the bitterness that comes from the breakdown of human relationships, which we all experience, whether it's in our families or our workplaces or our friendships or even neighbors. 
We live in a world with a thousand degrees of work-related dissatisfactions. Everyone in this room has experienced this. And so, as we're studying Genesis 3, we have to, we're, we're looking at this not just um, with regards to the issues of human sin and the origin of human sin and then our need, our consequent need for a savior, we, though we are looking at that aspect of this chapter. We've also seen the initiation of God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. So we've seen that much in this chapter already, but we also want to look at this chapter to build a biblical worldview and to show, hopefully, that it is only in this book, ultimately, that we have an adequate, an adequate and accurate answer to the question, why is the world the way it is? That we can build our worldview with this book. And so it's through the lens of this question, why is the world the way it is, that we're going to look at the judgments on the woman and the judgment on the man. The judgment on the woman and the man. And what we'll see from our passage, and this is going to be sort of our main point, or sort of our, central, our central idea, for tonight is that every dimension of life, every dimension of life in this world is affected by the fall and its effects. So that's our main point. Every dimension of life is affected by the fall and its effects. The fall has brought frustration into family life. It has brought weariness into work life. And ultimately, it has brought physical death, physical death. So turn to Genesis 3. We're going to, I'll start off in verse 14. Uh, we went through this last week. God judged the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Beginning of our text tonight, verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. To dust you shall return. And so we see, in contrast to the judgment on the serpent, when we come to the judgment on the woman and on the man, there's already an indication of God's grace here. Because God cursed the actual serpent and the power behind the serpent. He has not cursed the woman or the man. He has not cursed the, uh, the woman or the man themselves. And so we see here this distinction between the man and the woman who are, God is holding them responsible for sin, but he also holds the serpent responsible. So we see in this already the beginning of electing grace, electing grace, that there is a plan of redemption in God's mind that he has for Adam and Eve that he does not have for the serpent. He is distinguishing between them. He's discriminating between them and choosing to show grace to the creatures made in his image and not to the angels, whether it is Satan or the demons that followed him. And this, is, this grace is completely consistent, completely consistent with the nature of God that we have in the Bible, that even in these judgments, there's grace. God withholds from the man and the woman what they deserve, the full extent of what they deserve, and he gives them what they do not deserve. And as we move through these, we'll see more and more what those are. So he moves from the serpent to the woman, 
And the divine punishment on the woman for her involvement in this sin, for her responsibility in the fall, it affects her very distinctiveness as a woman. And it's those areas in which the design of, uh, in the design of God, it would be central to her life. And that would be her children, and it would be her relationship to her husband, her marriage. So the punishment would be felt in her family life. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And at the beginning of this, I will surely, we have the words of divine sovereignty there. This is a sovereignly imposed judgment. God says, I will, and it is done. It is so certain it might as well be in the past tense. Now, when it says here, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, it doesn't mean that God will multiply an already existing pain, an already existing pain, because there was no pain before the fall. God created a perfect world. Everything was good, and everyone knows that pain is not good. In Revelation 21, verse 4, I'll just read it for you real quick. Uh, this is at the end of the age, right before the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They're referring to God's people. Every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So pain is an effect of the fall that will be undone. It will be undone. And so, because it will be undone, we understand that pain is not part of the original creation. In fact, this is the first mention of pain in the Bible. In a pre-fall world, there was no pain because it was a perfect paradise. So when we think about pain, what is pain? It, it is a mechanism, it is a feeling, if you want to call it that, that alerts us that something is wrong. It alerts us that something is wrong. When we feel pain in our body, that should let us know that there is some type of damage or some type of decay or something that is not good for our body. So in this case, the pain that she would feel and that all of her descendants would feel is a constant reminder of the terribleness of sin. It is a constant reminder of the terribleness of sin. And so it is not in a superstitious way that, that we should be thinking about pain where, oh, I do something wrong and God's going to poke my voodoo doll and then I feel something. And he, that's, There's not a one-to-one -one relationship that pain has to our sin. What I mean is that pain exists in the world because of sin, because of the fall. Yeah, so it's a reminder to her of the terribleness of sin. The word itself means painful toil and labor. Painful toil and painful labor. I don't have to convince the mothers in this room that that is true. Uh, many places in scripture, childbirth is shown to be very painful as well. And this is before the days of modern Western medicine to alleviate that pain. Genesis 35, 16 through 18, there's just a little episode here. It says, this is the death of Rachel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor, when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And so the scripture acknowledges, and in many places it uses childbirth as sort of the standard of pain, as a sort of the comparison of that. And so this judgment that we see with the woman, it specifically refers to the pregnancy and the childbirth that she would undergo in order to propagate the race. But there are implications here as well for motherhood in general. Mothers experience anxiety over their children for the physical dangers that they face, the spiritual dangers as well. There's great labor and great sacrifice in raising nurturing and loving children, especially when you aim to raise godly children in this world. 
Um, there's great pain, great anxiety, great sacrifice. And this is why the concept of birthing people, as uh, many in our media and many in our society would have us believe that, that men and women are equal in all things, that they're identical in all things, that men could also give birth to children. I can't believe I'm saying that sentence out loud. Um, and that they should be acknowledged as birthing people is, for one thing, not true. It's not, not possible, but it's a massive insult to the women and the suffering that only they can experience, that only they can experience. The physical and emotional pain of childbirth, the possibility of ectopic pregnancies, which will claim both the life of the baby and the mother, miscarriages, stillbirths, postpartum depression, even the death of her children. There are many dimensions of motherhood that she will experience pain and that women experience pain even to this day. Though the primary meaning of this judgment is on the childbirth and the labor as well. It does have implications for all of motherhood, for all of motherhood. And so the judgment here for the woman moves from pain in childbearing to, to conflict in her marriage, to conflict in her marriage. What does it say? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, but he shall rule over you. You. If you're reading from the ESV, it says your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The New Living Translation says your desire, you will desire to control your husband. Now these two translations are more of, they're admittedly more of a, an interpretive translation. Um, it's more of the kind of giving the sense of what this means rather than the translation of the actual words. I think it is the proper sense, but we do have to keep that in mind. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, New King James, or the NIV, it will, they will translate it, your desire will be for your husband. And that is actually, the, that is actually more of a correct uh, translation of the, of the, uh, in the word for word. Your desire will be for your husband. Again, ESV and LT, they're translated to give the sense, but this is the actual this is really the actual rendering, your desire will be for your husband. Now, when it says that, it cannot mean that she will desire her husband sexually, now as a judgment, because she would have desired a physical relationship with her husband before the fall. And we need to keep that in mind as well, that sexual desire and the sexual dimension of, of marriage is not sinful. It is something that was in the original creation and within the, those bounds it is a pure and holy thing before God. So what does it mean if it can't mean that? Well, one of the things that we keep in mind, we're here to do Bible study, is that not correct? So one of the things that we keep in mind, a principle of interpretation is comparing Scripture with Scripture. Um, the, the term for it is called the analogy of Scripture. And so we understand the Bible, we interpret the Bible by looking in other places to see if they'll shed light on this passage that may not be as clear. And so turn... I think just a page for you all. Uh, turn to Genesis 4, verse 7. Genesis 4, verse 7. It's a parallel passage. I'll read it real quick. It's the Cain and Abel have presented their offerings before God, and God regarded Abel and his offering, but he did not regard Cain and his offering. And so Cain became very angry, and God confronts him about this. Verse 6, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Look at this last sentence. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And so when we come to uh, passages that are in close proximity, identical words, identical construction, they have identical meanings. 
this is really, the sense of this is a battle for control. In this Genesis 4 verse, sin wants to control Cain, but Cain must master sin. It wants to master him and dominate his life, but he must rule over it. And this is how we're to understand the conflict between the woman and, uh, and her husband, that the unity and the harmony of marriage is now diminished to a battle of the sexes. It's a battle of the sexes. Rather than submission to and respect for her husband, there's a desire to control him and to take the authoritative role in the relationship. So in this judgment, she would be resistant to the leadership of her husband, but it wouldn't just be one-sided, would it? What does that second line say? But he shall rule over you. So she would be resistant and rebellious against her husband, and he shall rule over you. I thought to my, when I was first reading this, I thought, hmm, does this have in mind the maintenance of male headship in marriage or the corruption of male headship? Because male leadership in marriage is God's design for marriage, and even that before the fall. Um, and we'll go over the pattern for the biblical pattern for marriage um, in a little bit. But here, what's primarily in view is the corruption, is the corruption of the husband's role. All throughout the history of the world, women have been treated as little more than property and objects for sex and for labor and for taking care of everything that the man might want. John MacArthur says this is the one thing that the modern feminist movement is right about, that women historically have been victims of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse at the hands of men and even at the hands of their husbands. And many of us even come out of cultures where, where men will enforce submission from their wives through either financial or physical harm. Where male headship, as understood in, the, in this sense, post-fall, now with sin in the world, a male headship doesn't involve the benefit and the well-being of his family, but it is pure self-will. Pure self-will. He just wants to get his way and he will force everyone else to conform to it, especially his wife. And so the resistant wife, the rebellious wife, and the domineering husband, these are totally contrary to God's will for marriage. And now with the sin nature in full effect, their marriage will naturally tend toward this battle of the sexes. And before we go over biblical marriage, you know, this is referring to the marriage relationship between Eve and her husband, but it also spills over as a general effect of the fall into all life, into all relationships. Because we do have conflict in our relationships with more than just our spouse if we're married. We have it at work. We have it with extended family. We have it with even strangers who might cut us off on the freeway. Matthew 5 verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And Paul in Romans 12 he says, in as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Why are we given those commands? Because we will generally tend toward conflict, not peace, as a result of the sin nature. So what is God's design and desire for marriage? Turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband's. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read from Colossians 3. It's sort of a parallel passage. Verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. Men and women are entirely equal in value and in dignity before God. Entirely equal in value and in dignity before God. There's no superiority or inferiority when it comes to the sexes in the economy of God. There's no hierarchy based on gender. We know this, uh, Galatians 3:28. Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when it comes to salvation, men and women, the husband and the wife, are pure equals before God. Now, in the design of God for marriage, the, the man is not the head, is not the leader of the family, and the leader of the marriage because he is better or smarter than the woman. Many of the men in here know that our wives are much sharper than we are. And so it can't possibly be for that reason. So this isn't a superiority of status. This is just, this is merely a distinction of roles, a distinction of roles, complementary roles. The classic illustration given for this principle is the relationship between the father and the son. Now is the father greater than the son? Is the son less than? The Father in essence, in dignity, in glory? No, of course not. But the Son does submit to the Father. He does submit to the Father's will. So when it comes to marriage, the wife is to come under the leadership of her husband. But what is the command to the husband? Is it to make sure your wife submits, to enforce her submission? No, love your wife. Love your wife. Husbands are called to love and to lead their wives to protect and provide for them, to serve and sacrifice for them. God has entrusted the leadership in marriage to men, not for self-will, so your wife can just do whatever it is that you want to do. He's entrusted you with the leadership in marriage so that you can work for their well-being, for their joy, and for their godliness. For their godliness. So the complementary relationship in marriage was always God's design. Now, as, God ju- as God's judgment on the woman, he will allow their sin natures to take effect and disrupt the harmony and compatibility and the unity that they once had. And so we see, we see now that sin has invaded the family. The woman will experience sorrow and conflict with her children and with her husband. Uh, I like this quote. One commentator said that most of a woman's problems, problems in life come from the little sinners that she gives birth to and the big sinner that she's married to. And so... On the face of it, it looks pretty bleak right now. If you're not married, you might be thinking, oh, I'm definitely not going to get married now if that's all that's in the store. And Satan has some solutions to these as well. Um, never marry, just date serially. And if you want to have sex serially, then you could just do that as well. Um, any type of sex outside of marriage, it's one thing that Satan uh, would encourage us to do. Uh, divorce, just divorce your husband. 
become a lesbian, you know. Children, have an abortion, just have an abortion. Uh, just choose to live only for yourself and just never have children, though you have sexual desire. Just never have children. And so once we reach our conclusion, we'll go over God's solution to these. But there is hope and there is grace. And many of the women in this room know that even though marriage is a and even the men know that marriage, though attended with sorrows and with hardship and with labor, that there is great joy that God gives us in the institute of marriage. So God has judged the serpent. He has judged the woman. And finally, he comes to the man. He comes to the man. Work life. Work life is wearisome. It is wearisome. So God first prefaces his judgment with the cause of his judgment. He's recapping for Adam. Look what it says here. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So God gave a clear prohibition to Adam in Genesis 2.16. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Adam chose to obey the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. He had the fear of man, not the fear of God. He feared the displeasure of his wife more than the displeasure of his creator. And Mind you, he was not deceived as Eve was. This was a fully informed, high-handed act of pure, self-exalting rebellion against God. And it was by this one act that Adam brought sin and spiritual death and eventually physical death upon the whole race. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you real quick because this passage is so important for Genesis 3. So important for understanding Genesis 3. We've been over it in one of our other messages. Romans 5, 12 through 19. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'm just going to begin reading. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Talking about the law of Moses. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So he begins comparing Adam with Christ here. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. And so he goes on with similar statements, similar successive statements to that. But the point of this is, is that death entered through Adam. And God is, reca is recapping that for him at the beginning of his judgment. And when Adam was confronted with his sin, rather than confess, repent, and seek the mercy and forgiveness of God, Adam instead tries to justify and exonerate himself and shift the blame onto God and onto his wife. And this was a total reversal and perversion of those marriage roles that we just went over as well. Eve listened to the serpent, Adam listened to Eve, and no one listened to God. And God is holding Adam primarily responsible for this mess. So what's the judgment? It goes on, the, ver the verse goes on, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. All the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. So in this judgment, there is a curse, but it's not on Adam. It's not on Adam. We have to remember that. The curse is on the ground. In verse 14, God cursed the serpent, the actual snake, as a reminder, as a symbol of Satan's humiliation. And now God curses the ground to frustrate the work that he's given Adam to do. 
in these judgments, we see that God is creating conflict. God is creating conflict. He creates conflict between the serpent and the woman and the seed of the woman as well, which would be her godly descendants and eventually Christ. For the woman, he creates conflict between her and her husband, and now the conflict is between the man and the ground that he is to work. Rather than live in harmony with his environment, as he was originally intended to, he is at war with it. He's at war with his environment. And remember where God had placed Adam as well. This is the Garden of Eden. This is the perfect, lush paradise that he was meant to work out the task that God had given him. I'm just going to read it just to remind us. Genesis 2, 5 through 15. When no bush of the field was in the land, was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. As was originally intended, food was easy picking. There was essentially no labor, no hard labor involved in getting food. It could be obtained at Adam's leisure. And now Adam would have to wrestle his food from the ground. Agriculture and the development of land would now be hard, frustrating, and backbreaking work. Adam would eat from it but it would be in pain. It would be in pain. The ground would give him his food, but reluctantly, and it would resist his rule. Now, most of us don't fully understand the true impact of this curse because when I want food, I'm going to go down on Roosevelt and go to Mirancho and get my produce, or I'm going to go down to the marina off of Hillsdale and get my noodles and make garlic chili noodles, and, and that'll be it, and I'll have my food. But someone broke their back and wrestled my produce out of the ground so I could have my chili garlic noodles. And we tend not to see the full impact of this because, not just because there's a middleman between us and our food, but also because now we have modern farming technology. And it, granted, it is easier to do this. It is easier to get our food now. But this would be the judgment for Adam, the curse on the ground, that agriculture and the cultivation of his food would now be hard work excessively hard work, painfully hard work. And we need to understand it's not work itself that's cursed. Work itself is not cursed. Work was instituted before the fall. God had given the command to Adam to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth, and to bring the full potential out of the earth that God had put in it. And we're made in the image and the likeness of a working God. God did work in order to create the universe. He didn't expend energy in the same way that we do, God does all things by a sheer act of sovereignty and power. But we are made in the image of a working God. But now man will experience great frustration 
as he works to bring the earth to its uh, potential. And it's important as we interpret this passage that we don't allegorize it or turn it into a metaphor of just, oh, well, now just all, all work is hard. Because this is referring specifically to the ground and the cultivation of crops. Though it does have implications for all of work life. It does have implications for all of work life. Because we all feel the echoes of this frustration in our work, no matter what that work is. Um, there is no work that is totally, perfectly fulfilling and satisfying as it was meant to be. This is one of the primary marks of living in a fallen world. Is we're frustrated with work. Most of us spend at least a third of our lives working and at least another third complaining about the work that we do. We experience that frustration. We totally do, all of us, no matter what the field is, no matter what the field of work is. Most of you in this room have known that frustration longer than I've been alive, frankly. We, you know the frustration when the yield is not proportionate to your efforts, when you're not getting out what you're putting into it. This is a universal human experience. Turn with me real quick to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. It should be in the middle of your Bibles, after the book of Proverbs. Turn to just the first couple of verses. First couple of verses of Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities. And here, vanity is referring to meaninglessness, futility. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Turn to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. So the writer here is considering all the things of life and considering is, is there any ultimate meaning to anything? Whether I just party it up my whole life, uh, whether I have projects and may have great accomplishments, is there any purpose to all this? Verse 11 says, Then I considered all, the, all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. How often do we feel like that in the midst of the work that we have to do? And so this spills over and this echoes out down through history, and we feel the reverberations of this curse on the ground and the frustrations we experience in our labors. But not only does this have implications for work, it also has implications for all of creation. You ever wonder why non-human things die? There are plants in my house that I have not watered, and I can promise you that they are either dead or dying. And I'm willing to guess that there are some in this room who have been grieved over the loss of family pets. Why did your dog die? Was your dog a sinner? Some of you are thinking, yes, yes, he was. <laughs> but really, was, was your dog a sinner? Why did, why did your dog die? Do dogs and cats and hamsters inherit original sin from Adam? Was the corruption and guilt of Adam's sin imputed to man and man's best friend? Because the, my Bible tells me that the wages of sin is death. Or another question, why are there tornadoes in this world? Why are there hurricanes, hailstorms, earthquakes, natural disasters that cause great destruction? Why do we see this universal presence of disorder chaos, decay, and death in our world. And we com we've come up with a name for this too. If some of you remember from your science classes when you were in either middle school or high school or college, we call it the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. That in a system, in any given system, that things will tend to move from order to disorder. 
that there is a general tendency of things to degenerate, to decay. You can observe this in the world, that there's a tendency of all things to move from order to disorder, whether it's your car inside or the engine, whether it's your house plants, your landscaping, your oral hygiene, if it's not maintained, it will move from life to decay, even the environment. Now our world and our culture has gone way too far and said that everything that's wrong with the environment is purely man's fault. Because of that, we also have the power to undo all of this. But I tend to see what our Bibles tell us about the curse and the fall and the effects of the fall on our universe. This is a dying world. This is a dying world. Turn with me again to Romans real quick. Turn with me to Romans. Uh, chapter 8, Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. And again, this is what we do when we're doing Bible study. We never read things purely in isolation. We have to not only keep the context of the book, but the context of all the scriptures to get a fully orbed understanding. So Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The creation is in bondage to corruption. It is in bondage to corruption. You can look around and arrive at the conclusion for yourself that this is not a world that is very, very good as God intended it to be. Whether it's animals, animal life, plant life, whether it's the stars, everything is dying. Everything is moving in this direction of decay. This would not have been the case in a perfect paradise world. And this was not the case. This was not how God originally created the universe to move in this direction. And again, we need to consider this because with respect to Genesis 3, we're not only looking at it as far as human sin, moral evil, and then our need for a savior, but we're trying to answer the question, why is the world the way it is? Why are things the way they are? Get, trying to articulate a biblical worldview. And modern unbelieving science, unbelieving science, they cannot give you the answers to the why questions. They can only tell you how. They can only tell you about processes, not about the reasons why things are the way they are. They can only tell you how things work out. And so finally, we're continuing in the judgment on the man, but now we're moving to our last heading, death, the certainty of death. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The day that Adam and his wife ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did surely die. They did surely die, as God said. The couple was dead in their trespasses and sins, following the new course of the world, following the serpent, they were alienated from God, hostile to him. This is spiritual death. This is spiritual death. But now they would also undergo the new reality of physical death as well. And not only would Adam be at war with the ground, he would ultimately lose that war. He would ultimately lose that war. 
as the ground would eventually consume him as he returns to the dust. Most of the church throughout its history has understood, and I believe correctly, that the command for Adam, uh, or the prohibition for Adam to not eat of the fruit of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that had he refused to eat of it, he would have attained to righteousness. That he would now have a righteous standing obtained on his own before God. Now we have to understand that this is Adam before the sin, the sin nature. So he had free will in, in the true sense of the word. Not like we have today. Our wills, apart from Christ, are in bondage to corruption, and bondage to sin. But they had free will in the truest sense. And so, if they had obeyed, then they would have had the tree of life to eat from and would have entered into eternal life from that point. Adam and his wife were intended to go from dust to glory, and now they will go from dust back to dust. And it's not only Adam, is it? All of us will die. And everyone after Adam and his wife has died. There are a couple of exceptions. Um, later on, in a couple, uh, couple chapters later in Genesis, we see Enoch, for he walked with God and he was not. And God just took him. He was just walking with God and God just said, you know, I think we're a little bit closer to my home than yours. Why don't you just come on home with me? And he just bypassed death. And later on in the, the beginning of the prophetic era, Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. Man never died. Man never died. And then, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, and he was raised never to die again, never to die again, seated at the right hand of God. And we saw in Romans 5 that in Adam all died. Romans 5, 8, the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for sin. It is what we are owed. It is what sinners deserve. Now, again, we're, we're thinking about this in terms of a worldview, a biblical worldview. The non-believing world will basically say, yeah, death is just natural. It's just, it's just a part of life. Well, now that is the case. Now that is the case. It was not before. Death is in, is, it has invaded into God's perfect world through sin. So we have to keep that in mind as we're, as we're developing a comprehensive biblical worldview. Death, as we know and experience it today, was not a part of God's original creation. But even for people who reject God's word, reject the authority of God's word, and deny the truthfulness and the reliability of God's word, they still, they still betray a, a, an understanding that death is not good. That it is not good. That we have that feeling that when our relative dies or a loved one dies, it shouldn't be this way. We have that feeling. They retain this understanding of death as something that is not good, that it should not be this way. That's why they mourn. That's why we all mourn, because we understand that death is a bad thing. And we understand fully, comprehensively from God's word that that is the case. We all have a fixed appointment with death. We all have a fixed appointment with death, unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back first. But we all have an appointment with God that is inescapable, unavoidable, and unpostponable. Is that a word? Hebrews 9, verse 27 the writer says, it is appointed for man once to die, and then judgment. We all have an appointment with death. So where is the grace in this? Where is the grace in this? How do we find Christ and find grace in a fallen world? If we look at the judgment on the woman, the woman, the woman and the man are spared. Their lives are spared. And she is allowed to live to even bear children. 
To know, yes, though there is sorrow, there is pain, she will know the joy of having children and raising children. Verse 15, it was said in the judgment on the serpent that it would be through her childbearing that a godly line of descendants would produce an individual, an individual champion who would crush the head of the serpent and be the savior of the world. So it would be through Eve's childbearing, through that sorrow, through that pain, that God would show this great grace and act of salvation. There's also grace in the fact that in her marriage, though there is conflict and there is the, the natural tendency, I mean, you're putting two sinners together. What is going to happen? They will have conflict. That even in the midst of that, that marriage, is, there's still going to be great joy, great joy, great enjoyment, great fun, great friendship in marriage. In the Old Testament, even when God was giving the law for men who would be drafted into Israel's army, there's, a, there's an instruction there that they should first, if they are married, they should be essentially exempt from the draft so they could be home. And it even says to be happy at home with his wife for a year because God knows that marriage is a, is a great gift. The New Testament calls it the grace of life, the grace of life. And in Christ, we can experience marriage as it was intended to be. We still have, we still retain our, our sinful tendencies, but in Christ, we can begin to move in that direction and experience marriage as it was intended to be. And so with the judgment on the man, he can, he can still work at all. He can still move in the direction, and even though it is to a diminished degree, he can fulfill, he can begin to fulfill the task of filling and subduing the earth that God had given him. And that even though it would be resistant to him, that the ground would still yield food. There are many people that are starving today and that have starved throughout history. But there, God still, as a, as a grace toward the human race, that, there, it, that cultivating food is even possible. So the ground would still yield food for Adam. And I think overall for them, the greatest grace in this is to show them that now, now in sin, nothing in this life would be able to fully and completely satisfy them or bring them fulfillment. And that this would drive them back to God. That they would have to find their satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. Steve said in one of his recent messages that anything that drives us to Jesus is a blessing. Anything that brings us to Jesus is a blessing. And that would be true. And you all know it because you all know that even if you love your job, even if you love your family, you know that those things by themselves will not bring you true happiness, full happiness, complete happiness, perfect happiness. That those things can only be found in God and in Christ. And that though they and their descendants would all die, though death is now a fixed reality in this life, the Holy Scriptures, this whole book, gives us so much instruction and guidance on how to die well. There is a dying well. For those in Christ, Paul says, it is far better, far better to depart and to be with Christ. That to live is Christ. If you have repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, that to live is Christ. Your whole life is about Christ. And to die is only gain. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That in Paul, knowing that his death was imminent, he was totally content to tell his ministry successor, I have 
fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. So you can, in Christ, die well. And so as we're thinking about all of this, the judgment on the woman and on the man to articulate a biblical worldview, to answer the question, why is the world the way it is today? We have our answers. God has given us the answers to these. And he's shown, he has shown us that nothing in this life will bring us that fulfillment and satisfaction. It's all vanity, and that drives us back to God. And that's not a bad place to be. Amen? All right, all right let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... The fact that even in these judgments, you've shown us great grace. You've shown Adam and Eve mercy and grace, and you've shown it to us as well. Lord, help us to frame our understanding of our lives and the world in terms of this great and terrible event, the fall, and help us to live godly and vibrant and fulfilling lives in this world, in our families, in our work. And as we eventually reach that point of physical death, unless you come back first, Lord, help us to die well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.